0: Visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC.
1: Welcome to the Monday edition of the On The Tape podcast. I am Dan Nathan, joined by Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi. She is the head market strategist over there at SoFi. Liz, welcome.
2: Thank you. Happy Monday.
1: Happy Monday. It was a heck of a weekend in New York City, man. What, 80 degrees, sunny on a Halloween, like, just weekend? I actually saw you all dressed up. You guys are going to have to go deep on the internet to probably find what Liz was dressed up for Halloween, but that was a lot of fun on Saturday. Liz, you and I got a lot to go through. We do not have Guy C. Adami uh, with us, but Guy and Danny had a great conversation with Brent Belote. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Kaler Capital. He is an oil trader. He's been trading oil for decades, and he had a lot to say on the supply-demand dynamics, geopolitical, and what that might mean for the price of crude. And you're really extrapolating to a whole host of other things that we talk about a lot. So stick around for that conversation. Liz, you and I are going to get the folks ready for the trading week because there's a lot going on this week. We have a Fed meeting. We have a Bank of Japan meeting. We got something going on as it relates to refunding. Um, this might be more interesting to you than maybe what the Fed has to say. And then obviously we are still in the throes of S&P 500 earnings, some huge earnings this week, too, that I'm focused on Apple and Lily both on Thursday and a few other things smattered in there, too. So let's get to it here. Let's talk a little bit about Friday's price action because the S&P closed down, I think, 10.5% on the year. This is the biggest peak to trough drawdown that we've had in over a year. And I thought it was interesting because what happened in the market On Friday, tech was trying to get buoyed by Amazon up nearly 7% after, I think what some would say was better than expected earnings and guidance. I thought it was fine, but maybe it was relative to the expectations. I think the stock was down maybe 17% from its recent 52-week highs into the earnings. And I think that had something to do with the reaction. Also, Intel was up nearly 10% on Friday. But notably, banks got destroyed. And I thought there was a headline that Jamie Dimon is putting in place a selling plan for, I think it was like a million shares of stock. Now, granted, he has been buying stock. I don't think he's ever sold stock. Okay, So I didn't think this should be the reason. Um, It's not like they're coming to market with a big block or anything like that. It's a selling plan over the course, I think, of 2024, at least starts next year. But that stock ended down 3.5% on the day. That's a huge move for JP Morgan on no fundamental news. Obviously, Yields are still a focus. We have the ten-year at four point nine percent. Where do you want to start? Because I thought the S and P closing the way it did on Friday was not particularly great, especially in a week where we had a huge merger announcement in the oil patch, right? The second consecutive one. A lot going on. Where do you want to start, Liz?
2: I, I think we start with that price action last week and, and the idea. First of all, that it wasn't just Friday that this happened, but. When we blew through 4,200 on the S&P, which everybody expected to be support, we did not bounce off of that support. And then we got into this precarious range below that, where we're sort of wondering how much further down will it go. And we teetered on correction. Thursday, I think we closed down 9.8%. So we were just a whisker away. And then Friday, decidedly in correction territory. Now, of course, you're going to hear that sensationalized, dramatized, and as if the sky is falling from some outlets Uh, or just some people who talk about it. But remember, I would keep this in mind. On average, the peak to trough drawdown every year is about 13 to 14%. So this isn't even an average drawdown yet. It just is in that definition of correction territory. And now we've got 10% between correction and where we would start talking about it being a bear market. So there's a lot that can still happen. Even as cautious as I am, I don't want people to get overly scared about the fact that we went into correction territory. What I think is going to happen now is, and it's already happening, if you listen to what people are talking about today, is the debate between, okay, that was enough, this is a buying opportunity, or that was the indication that things have broken down to a level that there's we still haven't found support. And in the midst of earnings season, earnings season kind of goes by themes each week. So last week, we had a certain theme. This week, we start to get consumer names. We start to get some of the stuff that's going to tell us where consumers are spending money, how much money they're spending and where they're voting with their feet, so to speak. And if they're actually showing up at stores, we got McDonald's already before uh, we're recording this today. So it'll be interesting to get a better read on the consumer, I think, by the end of this week. And also, obviously, the Fed, the biggest story you talked about the refunding thing. We can get more into that. That's probably not a story that's going to get major headlines because most of America isn't necessarily following it, but the Fed will get the headline.
1: It could be one of those things that under the hood moves markets, clearly yields, which could move S&P 500. But let's start with McDonald's. McDonald's sold off 18% from its recent highs. I think those were all-time highs to a new 52-week low. It's since bounced. It's up today on better than expected results. And I think this is interesting. So comp store sales were better than expected. They're talking about some pricing power that they have. This is a theme that we've been covering now for over a year in this inflationary environment. And like one of the narratives around consumer staples and one of the reasons why they sold off so hard was that they were losing pricing power at this stage of the game here. So McDonald's is demonstrating that they still have a bit. It could be the beneficiary a little bit of a trade down, I think, on a valuation basis relative to some of its peers. After a decline like that, when earnings are still intact, it just got cheaper. You know, you know what I'm saying? So Talk to me a little bit about this dynamic, because maybe the low hanging fruit on price increases was clipped, okay, in most of, let's say, earlier this year, that sort of thing. But some brands that might benefit from a trade down might find another leg
2: of that. Does that make some sense to you? It makes perfect sense to me. And I've been talking about Staples for a while. McDonald's technically falls into the discretionary category, but I think we all think of it as more of a Staples fast food chain or if we're going to put it in a category with the things like Chipotle. Laser, the fast casual McDonald's, certainly the lower price in that category. The trade down, I think, is what those types of businesses are going to benefit from. McDonald's is not alone in that category. We've also talked a lot on this podcast, and I want to make sure we distinguish between these two. We've talked a lot about some of the companies that are just consumer products on grocery shelves and raising prices that way and then calling it organic growth, even though it was just really price increases that have happened because of inflation passed through. McDonald's probably doing some of that, as I believe they mentioned in their earnings call, something about strategic price increases. So and I don't know what that means. I'm not going to speculate about what exactly is going on there, but perhaps that means not across the board. And if you're a consumer and you need lunch and you don't want to spend as much as what you were spending at some of those fast casual spots, I do think that a company like this is going to benefit from that trade down. We're seeing it, though across the board, not just in food, not just in some of these restaurant chains, things like Dollar General and what was it, Walmart, that has an average consumer now with six-figure income. So consumers are trading down everywhere. And I think that is what is going to benefit a lot of these consumer staples companies. And I would put food and beverage at the top of that list.
1: Yeah, and I would just say this. That McDonald's now trading at 20 times next year, and you look at the S&P per fact that trading on a forward basis at about 18 times, which is basically above the five and 10 year average or so, if you're looking for some uncommon values. When you have a stock like McDonald's sell off this way before the news is even out, you might have an opportunity to start dollar cost averaging. I think we both agreed that on, on consumer staples. I think the, the point that you make about discretionary versus staple and how sometimes they actually fly flow into each other makes some sense in in a period like this where there's not a whole heck of a lot of visibility on the consumer. I want to go to a tweet that you put out, I think, on Friday, Liz. Monthly personal spending grew 0.7% above the estimate of 0.5%, while income grew 0.3% below estimate of 0.4%. That's the fourth straight month of spending that's greater than income. To this, consumers are either dipping into savings or taking on debt or both? What does this mean to you about this stage of the consumer, where rates, where they are? We know we're going to get this jobs report on Friday. This would be the October jobs report. This is going to be important if you think about it. Obviously, we have already heard from the Fed and get a sense of where their heads are at about future rate increases, about inflation, about the strength of the jobs market. But this tweet is important to me because you are tracking spending of consumers relative to their savings and it possibly puts in our head a little bit about where these trends might be going in the not so distant future.
2: So there's a few things that I would mention about what I do for work. A lot of it is talking about indicators, but I don't make a a really concrete conclusion. And I don't get adamant about something unless some of those indicators are confirming themselves. So you might look at one data set and say it's telling us XYZ story, but it has to be confirmed by some other data sets. And this is now beginning to be a theme where you're seeing some of this trend be confirmed. And what I'm talking about is we've got spending still exceeding wage growth. Spending exceeding, obviously, savings has come down. If you look at the savings rate, it's come way, way down. So if people are spending more than what they're making, it has to come from somewhere, whether they're putting it on credit cards. And that's one of those points that has confirmed. Starting at the beginning of this year, end of last year, beginning of this year, you saw credit card balances increase substantially. They sort of plateaued late summer. So people stopped spending on credit cards. But that was after a year of Spending furiously on credit cards. So we know that some of it, some of that spending and the gap is being made up by taking on debt. The other piece of it is the savings rate has gone down tremendously. So people are not saving as much money. That confirms that as well. So maybe they've dipped into their savings, or at best, they're just spending everything as a dollar comes in, it goes right back out the door, right? And they're not saving anything in excess. Now, the rebuttal or the contradiction I might hear from that is the savings rate is always low when things are good. And that's true. People aren't scared, so they're not saving as much. And the savings rate goes down in normal environments. Those normal environments are not usually what's happening this late in the cycle after this much monetary tightening. So I think that there are now multiple indicators that are confirming that the consumer has slowed down spending at best. At worst, the consumer is getting nervous or has actually started to run out of money in certain income levels. I recognize that higher income levels have probably not run out of money yet, but those lower income levels are likely running out of money or already under a decent amount of pressure. So that was the point of that tweet on Friday. The other thing I would say about Friday, we got PCE data, and we're going to hear from the Fed this week. The Fed watches core PCE, right? That is their metric to watch. If you look at the projections that they just gave us in September, right now core PCE is at 3.7%. They're projecting it to stay there. So the Fed doesn't even expect inflation, the metric that they watch, to come down for the rest of the year. And we've got two more months to go. So I would say that's probably not the trajectory that we want to be on either. Granted, it's not going up in their projections, but obviously we want it to come back down. So if we've got, through the end of 2023, a Fed that believes we're not going to see that much more cooling in inflation that's a Fed that's probably still committed to at least leaving the door open to more hikes and keeping us in this mentality that it may not be over yet.
1: Yeah, and if we're just gonna string all of this together a little bit, I mean, you get to stagflation, really, when you think about it, right? So if the Fed is successful in cooling the jobs market, and again, we're gonna know more about that on Friday, I think the September number was, what, 335,000 or something. I think the expectations are 175, 185, or something like that. So uh, a meaningful step down like month over month here, the unemployment rate expected to stay at 3.8% or something like that. But if we do have the unemployment rate go up and we do have those job openings go down a little bit and then we see average hourly wages going further at a time where inflation remains sticky and and then companies like McDonald's are able to raise prices a little bit, that does not bode well, I think, for a consumer where the savings rate is going down. So I want to talk a little bit about this refunding and why this is important. is a quarterly refunding announcement that comes out. I think uh, just a few hours before the Fed uh, announcement on rate hikes here. Why is this um, important to you? You and Guy and Danny have spent a lot of time on the pod talking about Fed issuance here, okay? So the amount of issuance that they have to do here. Talk to us really quickly about why this is important, why investors should probably keep an eye on this. And what are the potential, I I think, for movement in yields? We have a 10-year at 4.9%. You made the point. Guy's made the point. Danny, made the point that yields being stuck in and around this level are kind of also helping the Fed out a little bit, at least for now.
2: That's right. So I think it's no secret to anybody that we run a budget deficit in the United States of America. In order to fund said budget deficit, we have to issue debt to pay for our obligations, which is why we've teetered on the brink of government shutdown a couple times already this year. So that's what we're going to hear about this week. We're going to hear about how much the Treasury needs to. Issue in order to fund obligations and cover that deficit. Because we know we have a deficit and because it hasn't gotten smaller necessarily, they have to issue some. What's happened over the course of this year, and particularly in the last few months, we've had to increase the amount that they're issuing because they need to cover their expenses. That's happening at a time when yields and the cost of borrowing, not just for consumers, but the cost of borrowing for the government, has gone up so much. If they do that if they have to issue more debt at higher costs, that number one increases their own costs, right? Because interest expense goes up as rates are this high, which is a, it's a feedback loop that just grows on itself. So increases interest expense. Then we have a bigger deficit to cover as months roll on. They need to issue more in order to cover that deficit. However, if you look at some of the action in treasury auctions over the last few months, we just had a pretty healthy 20 year, but the other auctions have not gone so great. So as that as we have to continue issuing debt, if there's no appetite, because we know we've lost Japan as a buyer, we've lost the Fed as a buyer, and we're losing some other big international players, if there's not enough appetite for the debt that we're issuing, you've got too much supply, not enough demand, and yields rise further. So it just continues to drive those borrowing costs up. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy of everything that we're worried about. And that's what could happen as the year goes on and as the months go on if we need to continue borrowing. And to wrap that all up, why do we care as investors? Even if the Fed says tomorrow, I'm sorry, on Wednesday, we're done. We're done hiking. We're going to actually start easing at some point, maybe before the market. People will celebrate that as a dovish message. But if you've got the bond market tightening on the other side of it, it almost doesn't matter. You still have monetary conditions tightening, and it puts the screws to capital across the economy, no matter what the Fed says. So that's probably the biggest concern that I would have.
1: It's interesting, as we're talking right here, Danny Moses just sent this to me. It was a an op-ed by Mohamed el in Bloomberg, time to hasten Japan's yield curve control exit or risk unsettling instability distortions from the BOJ's policy of suppressing yields threatened to spill over into bond markets in the U.S. and elsewhere. So when you think about that, you just saw it, we, we have been losing foreign buyers, but Japan's efforts on yield curve control, h- how do you see this kind of, playing out a little bit and talking about the instability because it seems we went from three years ago where every central bank was tripping over each other to ease, right? And now we have a situation where some of these longstanding policies, let's say in Japan for decades now, are flying in the face of what we need to do to battle inflation here and to basically raise our interest rates. So it just seems like it's been a very frantic few years by these central bankers. And to Guy's point, and again, I am not a central bank basher. I think these folks have a tremendously difficult job. I think they do have their best intentions um, in mind as it relates to managing crises. And they've definitely taken a forefront as far as crises, at least in my career over the last, say, 25 years and trying to kind of battle instability in, in, in financial markets and obviously maintain some level of stability for the economy. Obviously, they get things wrong, just as almost every investor or every policymaker does. But right now we do have this situation where some of these policies are really competing with each other in a way that could add some instability if they were to go awry.
2: I think Japan has shocked people more so than what's happened with the Fed because Japan had been on this path of we're going to keep the yield curve exactly how we want it It seemed like it for an eternity. Right. And now there's backing off of that because they don't have a handle on the currency. They don't have a handle on some of those inflationary forces. I think it's another drop in the bucket of a country around the globe that has a central bank that isn't exactly sure what's going to happen for the next six to 12 months. And we're all we've shifted from proactive to reactive. And now central banks are getting into this reactive state, which is not a good place to be. Usually you get into a reactive state late in the cycle when you have to save stuff, when you have to fix stuff. And it's starting to feel like that's where we are, not just in the U.S., but Around the globe. I don't think that is the best place to be if you're Jerome Powell or any other central bank. I'm not going to defend central banks here because I'm like you. I'm not a critic of them necessarily. I don't think that they're malicious. They're all pretty bad at predicting what they're going to do. And it's difficult, if not impossible, to predict what they're going to do because a lot of the stuff that they use, the theories that they use, the models that they use, are built on economic theories and academic theories of things that have happened in the past or certain theories as they should work. In an environment, the data that they use to put into those theories is mostly backward looking. So it's just it's a function of garbage in, garbage out or stale data giving you a stale response or a stale signal about what you're supposed to do with policy. So it is almost impossible for them to get that. But it's also an indication and a lesson every single time it's a lesson that investors shouldn't put too much stock in what a central bank is predicting that they're going to do with their own policy. You're never going to hear a central bank say, we've modeled in a, a recession in the next 12 months, and here's how we're going to react to that recession. So if you need to prepare yourself for a drawdown or for a recession, you're going to have to do that on your own and not rely on their commentary.
1: I'll just say this. In the last 15 years, and I've said it to Guy and Danny and probably you too, I I was working at an investment bank in 2007, 2008 that certainly would have gone under if it wasn't for the tremendous support of, of the Fed and all the fiscal and, and the backstopping of some of these organizations. And you can't prove it counterfactual. But I believe that we probably, if numerous other banks had gone under, we would have been in. A depression, there's no doubt about it. And if you think of the backstopping of some of these big industrial companies and GE, in the list goes on and on. And then again, with what happened during the COVID crisis in the spring of 2020, we most certainly would have had credit seize up and we would have had something that, you know, we would not have been able, it was the epitome of a black swan. So at the end of the day, for them to call inflation transitory, this, it's just semantics in my opinion. You know what I mean? Like people have been calling for inflationary pressures since basically all of 08 and 09 and 2010 programs. And yeah, it might have been garbage in, garbage out as far as the models in which they were using to measure inflation and its impact on the economy and consumer and balance sheets and the like but we had a pretty stable period here and if this is the worst thing that happens is a bunch of volatility after a black swan event as they try to normalize interest rates and don't forget I know you don't forget in 2017 and 18 what was Jerome Powell trying to do, normalize interest rates in anticipation of the ability to get easier in the event of the next sort of event. At the end of the day, and this is something that Guy, Danny, maybe me and you can have a much larger conversation on because again, I don't always find it that productive to, to weigh on every word that the Fed has to say because at the end of the day we get to focus on what the companies are doing and saying and to me that's most important for investing in the stock market. But I will tell you, which leads me to the cover of Barron's and Barron's often gets destroyed. Destroyed for their big proclamations on the cover that they have here. But I thought this weekend was really interesting, Liz. It's time to stop crying about bonds and just buy them instead. Now, I have tried to do that on a few occasions this year via the TLT, okay, the ETF, the tracks, the 20-year, t- the and that's been wrong and I've lost money. I've caught a couple little rallies in the TLT, but obviously it's been lower left, upper right for bond yields this year. But I will say that a theme that when I was asked on CNBC or our pods, how would you invest? This was in 2022 in the throes of that bear market. And I would use that expression Qs and twos. I would say the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100 averaging into that and then also doing the same in bonds, whether it be twos or twenties. And I get it. There's a big difference there, but they're both about 5% right now, too. So either way, I think that if the NASDAQ 100, if the QQQ were to get to that 20%, plus range from its highs, I would be looking once again at the Qs and 2s. And I think that is a trade-to-dollar cost average. And what do you think of, and we don't have to spend too much more time on bonds. Let's get to some of these earnings this week. What do you think of, though, at some point if we were to see the NASDAQ 100 pull back or we were to see some sort of confirmation that the Fed – at where they are relative to their inflationary targets. And I get it. They're not near that 2%. I do think at some point we're going to see that rejiggered maybe two and a half, three percent percent or so. I think that trade makes sense to get back into the TLT. Because if stagflation were to be a theme as we go into 2024, Liz, I think it's going to be hard on equities. But I do think that means that yields are not going to go too much higher in anticipation of the recession that will happen in 2024 and then at some point the Fed gets easier monetary policy?
2: So the first thing I would say is I, d- I actually don't think the Fed is going to change the inflation target, but I think the way that they probably communicate it, and this is just splitting hairs, but the way that they probably communicate it is saying that the neutral rate is above where they originally expected, and they're going to basically stop lowering rates at a higher neutral rate than what we originally planned on. I will not be surprised to hear that. As far as bonds, full disclosure, last week I added to my seven to 10-year position, treasury position. And I added to my short treasury position, which is a one to three year ETF. And I also have directly a six month T-bill that I've continued to roll for about nine months or so. So I actually do think that there's decent opportunity in bonds, but this isn't something that those positions, I don't expect them to kick out a ton of capital appreciation in the next 30 days. This is something that I still, I want the interest while I wait. I want the yield while I wait. And I haven't seen yields like this in my career. I don't expect to see them again for a while. Now, let's say the 10 year was at about 495 when I bought my last position or, or added to that position. If it goes up to 525, okay, bummer, but 525 if that's the top, I'm okay with losing a little bit in the near term knowing that over time and more likely in 2024 We're going to see that come down. The only reason that I do the 10-year rather than something longer is because I want the leverage to all of the rhetoric that happens around the 10-year yield and the way that the market reacts to that in real time. And as fear increases, you do see more volatility in the 10-year. Look, I love volatility on the upside if prices are going up. So I want some of that exposure to the chatter, and I want some of the exposure to the volatility that you see in that space. But I do like bonds here. I like treasuries. I don't like corporates. Even investment-grade corporates, I don't like. I still think spreads are too tight. They've slowly risen. We've had this quiet rising in spreads, especially in high yield. But I think that they're still ripe for a bit of a blowout, particularly on that high yield side. But I would be careful in the corporate environment. I think there are a lot of corporations out there that started borrowing when rates were very, very low. And generally, I think I mentioned this last week on the pod, the average duration, if you just look at a bond ETF that covers corporates, the average duration is probably somewhere between five and seven years. So think about where rates were in the last five years or so. Obviously, many of those rates much lower than they are today. So I'd be very careful in the corporate space. Yeah,
1: no doubt about that. Okay, And you have been mentioning that the L QD, the ETF the tracks. It's the iShares, iBox, liquid corporate bond ETF. It is very near its 52-week lows and well off those recent highs of earlier this year. It's trading around 99, 100-ish or so. I think it topped 112 early in the year. Let's look at Apple, which actually trades a lot like a bond here. You think about that huge cash position and their ability to make a yield on that. And that was something that people thought essentially they buy back billions and billions of dollars of their stock every quarter. What they were returning on that cash was something that I think Some investors had placed them in the penalty box a little bit. Guys made this point on many occasions that years ago when the company was growing the way a growth company should be, it had a value multiple on it. Now, when it's expected to grow mid Uh, High single digits earnings and sales trading about 25 times. It was getting a bit of a staples valuation here. And so when I think about Apple reporting Thursday after the close, the implied move in the options market is about three and three quarters percent in either direction. The stock is down 15 percent from its all time highs made in July. A lot of the chatter is in and around China and how the iPhone 15 is expected to do. I think some of the data year over year in that October month when they released the 14 a year ago versus now down about six. 6% 6% or so. I think in the quarter, some of the expectations that sales could be down 4%. They have a, a Mac event tonight, which is really interesting, Liz. It's a prime time. It's 5 o'clock Pacific time, 8 Eastern. They don't usually do that. Also, this morning when I was looking on the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the business section, advertisements for that event. Tim Cook was recently in China at a gaming event held, hosted by Tencent. We know that China has been very difficult spot right now for Tesla. They've talked about retooling of some plants, one of the reasons why I think it has to do with competition. And competition is the story for the iPhone 15 in China. Huawei has some great phones. A lot of these other local manufacturers have some great phones that have caught a lot of steam at a time where the government is banning government workers from having iPhones. So again, lots going on there. But this is one as basically Apple has looked to move manufacturing out of China, like places like Vietnam and India. To me, does Apple become less important to the Chinese, both from a consumer standpoint, from a manufacturing standpoint? Does they run the risk of supply chain disruptions there as the Chinese basically de-emphasize maybe Apple after two decades of emphasizing them from a jobs provider? I think that's really interesting. So when the company reports on Thursday after the close, this is one that obviously, I think, has multiple implications outside the company itself. Thoughts on the importance of Apple, not specifically on the fundamentals of the company, Liz. A stock the largest equity down 15% into the print where a lot of this stuff is known now, at least the fears are known. Do you think it runs the risk of having the sort of response that we had maybe out of an Amazon or an Intel if the numbers are not as bad as expected, or at least the guidance or the visibility doesn't appear as bad as some investors expect?
2: I think Apple is a company where there's a very big difference between the consumer sentiment around it and the investor sentiment around it. And I do actually think it's pretty interesting that they're doing a prime time event, I didn't realize that was the case. I wish I could call somebody there and ask them exactly why that is. There could be, I I think that there's probably a couple possibilities. You've got, first of all, you're just trying to drum up enthusiasm about a product and get in front of the people who are actually going to buy it. So I think that makes sense. But since it's just a Mac event, right, it's not an iPhone event, an interesting approach, but it also could be a situation where you want to drum up enthusiasm about the stock and you want to get in front of the retail audience and the retail investor is such a powerful force and you want some of that word of mouth you want people to have chatter about it so in- an interesting approach for sure i think apple is also a stock that i would put in the really important to the market sentiment column where if apple goes a certain direction people start to look around and say oh wait something's wrong if Apple's going down, other stuff is probably going to go down too. And you start to have this guilty by association, whether it's in the Magnificent Seven or in just some of those big tech names, people just worrying about stocks moving uh, in tandem in a different direction. And as much as the Magnificent Seven has benefited investors who've been present in them this year, I think it can go the other direction as well if you've got a handful of them moving down pretty quickly, which at this current moment, we do. So it does dent sentiment. I think Apple is a very influential name, not just for consumers, but also for investors. And we know, obviously, how much of an impact it has because of all the ETFs that it's a part of. So as investor sentiment changes, whether it has anything to do with Apple at all, Apple suffers or benefits just by design.
1: Yeah, listen, not to put too fine a point on this as far as as the Magnificent Seven. I mean, Tesla got them kicked off, and I think that was fairly disappointing, the results and their guidance, and the stock sold off tremendously. Microsoft put up good results, but it ultimately ended up giving back a lot of those gains. Alphabet got absolutely destroyed. Amazon bounced. Let's see if it could hold that. We don't get NVIDIA for a a few more um, weeks or so. So when I think about what's going on here, and I'm looking at just like a little table of the sector here, I see communication services. That's a bunch of internet technology. Is a bunch of hardware. Those are both up about 30% of the year. Consumer discretionary, basically Tesla and Amazon also up about 15% on the year. But after that, industrials down 2% of the year, energy down 3% of the year, basic materials down 3.5%, financial services, the XLF down 8%, healthcare down nearly 10%, staples down 10%, real estate down 12%, utilities have gotten destroyed down 18%. The stock market is not working unless you are a mega cap tech stock. And I think that's the story. But this is another one that I want to put, and this is the last thing we'll hit here because I think this is really important. On Thursday, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, okay, they both report earnings. Combined, they have a trillion dollars in market cap. The stocks are up over 100% from their 52-week lows, up 40 or 50% or so, I think, each one of them on the year, okay? Eli Lilly trades about 45 times next year's expected earnings, okay? This is all in these weight loss trades drugs, these GLP-1s, the two of them are benefiting from this. The way the stocks react to their earnings and the guidance that they give, I think this could be as important as Apple. Why? We've seen lots of investors move into these names, especially a lot of growth tech investors, okay? Rarely do we see pharma companies trade at these sorts of multiples. So I think some investors are looking at these and thinking of it as a massive megatrend, and I get it, okay? Personally, beneficiary of these drugs, okay? But how they react to what is likely to be good results, Results And guidance might really give us a good sense of how the rest of the market or investors are positioning for the rest of the year. Because if AI and GLP ones, two of the best stories in the stock market and two of the only things that are working right now to this point, if they can't find incremental buyers on good news, then watch out below, in my opinion, because they're very crowded trades
2: couple things very quickly. First of all, anytime there's a new theme that's really hyped up, it's usually overhyped. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be meaningful, but there usually is an overbought position on that theme before it settles back into price discovery, just of the theme. And then you have to figure out beyond that, which companies are going to actually win along that range. They don't all win, right? So I think that's probably where we are with some of this healthcare stuff. The other thing I would say is As somebody who talks about small caps all the time, it's been a long time since we've had pharma be synonymous with growth, right? But in the small cap space, pharma is pretty growthy. Pharma and biotech are big elements of small cap ETFs, particularly small cap growth ETFs. We don't talk about it a lot in the large cap space because a lot of times in large cap, we're talking about healthcare as defensive. But this is a period where you've got some new developments in pharma slash biotech where large cap companies are getting some of that growth bid. And I think that this is an interesting way to play some beta in the market in healthcare as a sector because it's not as rate sensitive, it's not thrown in the bucket with tech and communications and discretionary from a growth perspective, but it is producing some growth. So this is, I think this is a good alternative if you're looking for growth opportunity. But as you've mentioned, as you've pointed out, I would be careful today because I think some of this has gotten overhyped. So let some of the steam come out. If there's any theme from this earnings season, it's that beats have not gotten rewarded as handsomely as they have in prior quarters across the board. So even if there are good results reported, I wouldn't expect it to be something that's astronomically higher in the stock price. I think we've also transitioned to a place in earnings where we've got the bars a little bit higher rather than the bar is low and we're jumping over it easily. The bar is higher because we have high expectations for next quarter and beyond. So the stock prices aren't getting rewarded as easily.
1: I could see a Lily or Novo trading the way, let's say Alphabet did, where the quarter wasn't that bad. The guidance wasn't that bad, but investors just hit the sell button first and want to ask questions later because it's a very crowded trade and you have that sort of price action. All right, Liz Young, thank you for being here with me early on a Monday morning, getting everyone all set for a business. Week in the markets.
2: Absolutely. Love being here on Monday. Love kicking it off with you and happy Fed week to everybody. All
1: right. It will be a happy Fed week for our friends, Guy Adami and Danny Moses. So check in with us later, Liz. You're going to be back with Guy and me on Market Call on Thursday. We got Carter Braxton Worth on Market Call with us. We have a great week on the tape, OK Computer. So check all of that out and stick around for Danny. And Guy's conversation with Brent Belote. He is the founder and chief investment officer at Kaler Capital. They talk all things crude oil and energy.
0: With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined by Danny Moses today. Great to have Danny with us. And today we're speaking to Brent Belote, founder and chief investment officer at Kaler Capital. Brent, how are you?
3: Doing great. Thanks for uh, having me. It's a perfect
0: time to have you. Energy is in focus. But before we get granular, just tell us about your background, how you came to be Kaler Capital. Give the audience a little perspective as to who you are.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I worked at uh, J.P. Morgan in New York for about nine years, traded oil derivatives and product derivatives while there. Left in 2016, when it was a make or break moment, we found out we were pregnant with my first daughter and didn't want to commit to the New York life long term. So we headed west and we ended up finding a home in Jackson Hole and I launched Kaler Capital with outside money in 2019. So we've been running for almost five years now.
4: That's great. And the products that you were trading now versus what you were doing then. Is it similar, same type of things? Have you ventured out into different areas?
3: No, exactly the same, yeah. So there I traded energy derivatives and same thing in Kaler Capital. So we're a systematic energy firm now. We focus on fundamental data points and algorithms. So we're trying to essentially track what does the six to 12 weeks supply-demand balance look like in oil, and then overlay a couple of different algorithms
4: that I created on top of those. I have a very important question to ask you, by the way, about that. So when you're at a bank and you're trading, quote, the bank's balance sheet, versus yours and your client's balance sheet, your livelihood's different. I'm curious, I'm sure you have integrity for both, I'm not questioning that, but in terms of the risk appetite and stuff, the tap on the shoulders there versus now and so forth, how does that differ? Huge difference, and you're able to essentially take larger risks at banks and more concentrated
3: because you just have a set var limit, whereas at Kaler Capital and even personal investing, you need to think on more of a day-to-day, what's your average volatility look like, what's your monthly volatility, your annualized, what's your proper risk return look like, whereas, At JP Morgan and similar institutions like that, they just care about the final number at the end of the day. They're not looking at your daily return scheme, your Sortino, your Sharp ratio as a whole. So it was a pretty steep learning curve once I left, but I'm glad I did it on my own for two years before accepting outside capital.
0: Brent, before we go below the hard deck, as they say, let's fly at 30,000 feet for a second. And over the last month or so in the space, Chevron announcing a deal for Pioneer Natural, $60 billion deal. On the heels of that, ExxonMobil has another $52 billion, I believe, all stock deal. I mentioned that not to talk about those individual stocks, but to me, and I know Danny agrees with this, it speaks to both the health and the long-term viability of the sector. Does that make sense to you? Because obviously there's been a lot of naysayers in the space over the last five to seven years. But to me, it feels like we're in the sort of the golden age of energy and resource stocks. Speak to that.
3: Yeah, definitely agree with that. I think golden age is the right term because we're in a process where every politician on the planet industry trying to kill future investment in oil. They want to switch to the green initiative. They want to pivot away from hydrocarbons, but demand is still growing year over year. It's great to forecast that demand is going to flatline, but until it actually does, you're killing the future demand in the future supply that you need and the investment that is flowing into that business. And you're going to end up with a point in this along the supply demand curve where supply is flatlined to tapering off and demand is still going up. And I think the only way that those are two are going to balance in the short term, when we hit that kind of pivot point, going to be demand destruction from price increases pretty drastically so i like to think of this as the golden age of oil investing i think it's going to be here for a long time i don't see it slowing down for the next 10 years there's been a big discrepancy in our space around the iea versus the opec medium term forecast and i obviously i side with opec (laughs) in saying that demand is going to increase pretty substantially over the next decade and it's not going to flatline as fast as they hope
4: brent even to that point you just made so in old times or normal times, whatever's normal anymore. If you had demand destruction, you had a global economy slowing, you would see the adjustment right down in energy. And you're saying that because of the ESG impact and just the lack of exploration and production, we will feel that less. How do you measure that though? There's rig counts obviously that you can look at and real time. So if China goes off of a cliff, Europe's in a recession, we move into recession, how do you gauge that? What are you looking at specifically to tell you that that type of demand destruction only can go so far as far as lowering oil prices?
3: So what you said is right. If you have a a slowdown in GDP across the world, we will see a a pullback in oil demand, especially in oil demand growth. I don't think oil demand, people are calling that it's going to flatline or go negative and will start to essentially peak demand and we're just not there yet so couldn't slow down and grow at a slower rate yes but the rate that they have forecasted in terms of saying we'll be on a downwards pivot from oil demand declining year over year by 2030 with the IEA said i just don't see that happening and even if it is a slowdown we're still averaging over 1 million barrels per day of growth year on year so the fact that they're calling for five to 700 within three to four years, a pretty drastic convergence and a big cut.
4: So for people that are out there that don't trade energy and don't trade oil, you got the West Texas and then you got the Brent we know the difference. The the difference is basically transportation costs of getting that oil and what the local demand might be. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I know people traditionally have traded that spread. Is that something that you do? And what do you look for when you trade that spread? Yeah. So we are seeing in in the last five, six years
3: is WTI Cush in particular is becoming less of an important hub in the world as the oil hub started to move much closer to the Gulf Coast. So most people now will look at mostly Gulf Coast grades versus Brent. And Brent is really jump in terms of the barometer of the global market at this point. And you're even seeing other, China launched an oil contract. Dubai has even seen an uptick in their volume. But uh, I would say Brent is really the global leader of oil at this point.
0: Your parents obviously had some foresight when they named you, so good for them. And in terms of trading, futures is something that you obviously focus on. So let's get granular here in terms of WTI and the futures contract. We probably saw a low print, I don't know, somewhere between 63 and $65. Maybe we topped out at 95 ish As we're sitting here, 83 I would submit, and I'm not saying I'm right, I think energy stocks could do extraordinarily well in this range, somewhere between 80 and 90 But if you're trading it, what are you looking for day-to-day? Because some of the volatility hasn't made a lot of sense to me. I will say supply-demand imbalances suggest the crude should be a lot higher than we currently are.
3: Yeah, I think that's where we're at is we would have been a lot higher last winter had it not been for a historically warm winter in Europe. Distillate markets have obviously been through the roof for that. Yeah, if I look at the forward balances of oil, I think it is saying that we should be higher where we are currently. The problem you're running into right now is seasonal weakness. We're still shell-shocked. Everyone's still shell-shocked from winter and driving demand is slowing up here. So you're in a real shoulder season and it's hard to get ahead of that until you actually see the actual physical data start to come in and it start to uptick. So I do think that I always said that I think we'll probably be in this range until you get to right around Christmas or even you start getting first signs of winter in Wyoming or even in Europe. And then from there, that's when it can be a a real bullish first quarter of next year. And I think that is really the the framework. What we're thinking about is a longer term trading and things that we're tracking in our algorithms as well is what does it look like over the first half of 24? And I agree, it does look quite bullish on the supply demand front.
4: Brent, how do you deal with changes in currency, do you hedge those out depending on the product that you're trading? And my follow up to that is obviously you worked at a bank, you understand how banks lend into the sector, you understand the leverage that the sector may have. And my question is that, is it a known entity that people know who's kind of levered out there, what the positioning is? And I mentioned that because this UK fund that blew up several months ago, literally when oil was at 65, even though it had a bullish, had a long trade on an oil, got two levered, um, and the bank basically margin called him, so to speak. So How do you analyze all those things? In
3: terms of currency, we trade only exchange clear derivatives. So we don't have any kind of currency hedging on our books or even any currency risk for that matter, all CME and ICE. In terms of leverage, I agree that's a huge problem and something that you need to think about in terms of trading those. Getting over your skis and taking too much risk and getting stopped out is, were you wrong or did you just run
4: out of time? Your experience at the banks, granted prop trading, but you must know that the risk tolerance for these banks post Dodd-Frank and all this stuff was very different. And so... When you're looking in the market, you can see positioning, right? You guys can see same way we look in the equity markets, whether it's a bull bear or whether it's put call ratios, you guys see that in the oil market. Do you use that information to help you make these type of decisions, investing decisions?
3: No, for us, it's pretty much all supply demand on the underlying fundamentals. So we're looking at, again, what's the movement of oil around the world? Are we building? What does refineries look like? Where's the really margin? About 70% of our total VAR is derived from relative value trades in relation to the oil market. So gasoline cracks, heating oil cracks, and you mentioned it, the WTI Brent differential.
0: Geopolitical risk. I know it's very hard to game out, but you know what we're seeing obviously in the world, forget about just the last six months, over the last couple of years, has been extraordinary. Again, I'm surprised by the lack of volatility. But is it just a matter of time? Mike, how do you gauge what we call tail risk in our business? It seems to be a tremendous amount out there that I don't think the market is properly taking into consideration.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's an interesting point that even most recently with Israel and Gaza almost that's has really brought to the forefront. I like to think about it as a geopolitical risk premium. And I think that was why you saw oil spike almost five dollars two weeks ago on that Friday. Was everyone's just a little concerned about it and i think as this has progressed they've started to take it out of the market and it's starting to see it even today down another couple percent in oil and it's been a function where people are now seeing that the world doesn't want this to happen and it was a given that israel was just going to plow ahead and, and and move into gaza quicker and now they're slow playing it they don't want a long productive war they don't want other entities to get involved and i think cooler heads are, are slowly prevailing here in terms of volatility as a whole i totally agree with you it's been a wild from Russia, Ukraine, we went to 140, back to 100 in one month in oil. And it was the right move, to be honest. We looked at our models and we're sitting at $140 Brent in March of 22. And we hadn't lost a single barrel of oil from the market. Everything was still coming out of Russia. Everything was still being bought. There was really no sanctions that it had any teeth to them at that point. It made sense that we did a full round turn in oil at that point. And it's, now it's just been more of a distillate catch-up story where distillate cracks have just been so high for so long as a result of that.
0: Today, if you're trading commodities, and I did this for a long time, late 80s into the 90s, you didn't necessarily have to be some global economist, but you had to have an idea. Today, without question, you have to understand what's going on. And I mention that because global bond markets seemingly out of control. What's going on in Japan in terms of their currency is seemingly out of control. But I mention it because these have direct impacts into what's going on in your world. So how closely do you follow that and how much of an input is it in terms of decision-making?
3: Yeah, very important because obviously overall, even regional GDP is stuff we look at on a daily basis and will give us forecasts on on what we expect oil demand to be doing. It's also a macro product and I hate to say it, but there's certain times like where it's a risk off day and even if the fundamentals are as bullish as can be in oil, but the s and is down 5% and bonds are getting killed, everything's just down, it can be a risk off day where everything gets dragged with it. Again, that's why we try to keep 70% of the VAR in relative value, just from a standpoint of diversification. The worst thing to happen is you're an oil trader, but you're really trading equities or you're trading some other thesis or story that's not aligned. So we try to stay in our sandbox as much as possible. But yes, that is something we track and, it, and it's definitely at the forefront.
4: Brent, just the structure of your fund in general. I know we touched at the beginning your strategy, but the structure of your fund, daily liquidity, if I read that correctly and so forth, how do you manage around that? Because we talked before about difference of managing money at a bank versus now. And how do you think about that? Because big swings can be very good and they can be really bad. And how do you harness that in from a risk yeah, management?
3: Yeah, exactly. We're pretty upfront that, hey, listen, and this is a 20 volt product. We're not in here trying to run a 5% annualized volatility fund. It's a big boy game with big boy pants and there'll be some swings that happen in it. And the daily liquidity thing is stuff where we're trading extremely liquid energy futures and options. We're usually in the front three to four months. So offering daily liquidity to me was a no brainer in terms of allowing people to have that. It's not like we're going to really affect the market in terms of even if we were a billion dollar company with AUM, it wouldn't move the market drastically. Right now we have SMAs. But we are on a number of different fund platforms that kind of give rise to, that people can access a fund vehicle through.
0: I think the three best things that have happened to the energy space in order, one ESG, as counterintuitive as that is, but I think it forced so many of these companies to be better actors, get their businesses in order, understand their balance sheets, all the diversify their businesses, all those different things. And by the way, I think probably the best ESG companies out there, somewhat counterintuitive, our energy companies, number one. Number two, that $39 print we saw in Front Month crude a few years ago, I think that was a wake-up call for the entire industry. And then number three, I think, and this is not political, but I think the Biden administration, their want to obviously put these companies out of business, something they've said, I think has helped them as well somewhat counterintuitive. So all those three things lined up, but speak to that because you did mention it. I mentioned it outside of you, golden age without question. Speak to those three things if you can.
3: Yeah. Number one, ESG couldn't agree more. Number one, I think they've done a great job at actually being valid ESG actors and and helping in, in positive ways, but also it made it more expensive to do it. So you have to have a higher return up front in order to finance some of the back end costs. So it made the cost of exploration much more expensive on the 10. And that's another thing that you talked about rates, 8% rates versus 2%. Now it's more expensive to get financing for these PE deals 10 years out. Two, in terms of the negative print on April 20th, 2020, I wrote an article the next day that said, this is the most bullish event that's ever happened. Because as soon as you went negative and you went that spread that much, you immediately filled every single drop of storage that you had and there was nowhere else to put it. So you were overproducing supply. And you had an immediate reaction factor where supply had to drop down to whatever our level of demand is. Because there's no way, you can't just pump it and then if there's nowhere to store it, there's nowhere to store it. You have to turn it off. And a lot of these ones, when you turn it off or don't invest in it, they can't come back. And that was another reason why COVID was a very bullish event long-term for oil, even though it was short-term bearish. If you look at how much CapEx was cut throughout 2020, those have effects not for 2020, those have effects for 24, 25, 26. The lead times on those projects to continue to go takes forever to flow through the system, and that's where we're seeing now is those projects and that lack of cap outs is now having a a big catch up effect.
0: Investment process. Let's drill down a little bit. No pun intended, but your investment process, and obviously the strategy differentiation that you offer.
3: We think of it as a flow chart of oil. Comes out of the ground. Oil goes through pipelines. Ends up in an oil refinery. And then what comes out of it? How much gasoline, heating oil, jet fuel? And lastly, where does that find a home? And we try to draw a box around each aspect of that process, create a supply-demand balance over the next six to 12 weeks. And then we look at essentially two or three algorithms that are the velocity of the physical market. We're trying to gauge how fast the physical market is changing. And the reason for that is taking a long-term view, I'm always reminded of the saying, are you an investor or are you a trader? And there's times to be an investor where I say, hey, I love this thesis, I'm holding this for forever. I love play, it's gonna take nine months, but that's a bank trade, that's not a, a day-to-day trade, that's not a daily liquidity trade, that's not someone that you can go in and say, yeah, I know we're down 30% in the month in this, but we like it, so we're gonna hold it. Whereas at a bank, you have that, that ability. Trading each bucket of that allows us a little bit more new Nuance and a little bit more quickness in being a fundamental trader but also being able to react to what is going on in the physical market in real time
4: back to the banks again i'm just curious they're obviously less active these days with their own balance sheets but who in the banking world is still very active is it u.s banks european banks etc and then also who do you find that is the best strategist out there i'm just curious to get your thoughts who who, who do you follow the, you know the most for strategists i'm going to go outside of that and go energy
3: aspects of and Rita sand is fantastic and i have followed her in terms of the banks i know jp morgan goldman are still and morgan stanley are still pretty heavily involved they obviously do a lot with hacienda hedge and they're still very big players in that it's interesting because now most of the risk takers have switched from banks to trade shops and that's how it been. And I think you're seeing a real interesting dichotomy in the oil market where a lot of oil traders are now going to multi-strats since all these multi-strats are trying to go the millennium route where they're bringing people in-house, trying to hire direct oil talent, which in the past they haven't done. So it's interesting to see the fight for talent in the oil space these days.
0: You said something that resonated in terms of understanding if you're a trader or an investor. And something I tell people all the time is... Unless you're in the top 1% of 1% of people that do this for a living, and that's very few, it's very difficult to wear both hats because typically what happens is a trade that goes sour becomes an investment. An investment that does well very quickly becomes a trade, and you wind up really zigging when you should zag. So maybe speak to the understanding of wearing one hat and wearing that hat.
3: Yeah, I completely agree with that. (laughs) I think I've even seen that in my own PA over the last six to seven years. I think having a proper risk management on all fronts drives everything. And I think that's one reason why professional traders and hedge funds and and CTAs have success. And I think that was a big reason behind me going more the systematic route. Essentially, when I left big Morgan, I was thinking about risk. What are the rules that I follow and how do I follow those? And my thought process was, well, if I have all these rules that I had written down and I've learned over the last 10, 12 years trading, why am I not automating those and making them a reality in a proper risk metric system where I can actually validate I have the data, I can see it in real time and try to do it properly. And it's not just something where, hey, I think this is this and this looks bullish, but that's bearish. But the bullish is more bullish. Okay, how much more bullish and what should I be trading and how long should I be trading and what instrument? So it's trying to take it the next step of understanding the oil market and breaking it down. And I agree with you. I think how people handle losses is much more important than how they handle winners.
0: For our listeners, I think it's a million dollar minimum investment. Again, you mentioned daily liquidity, but give some of the other key reasons to invest with Kaler Capital.
3: Yeah, we've been running this will be our fifth year. We haven't had a down year yet. We're averaging about 17% compounded annualized rate of return. We should be close to about 75 million AUM by the end of this year. We've had a Pretty substantial growth in AUM, which is great. And recently hired first employee of Kaler Capital in 2023. So Sam Vogel joined as chief operating officer and he's great and helping us grow in all the right ways. So we're growing pretty quickly and it's an exciting time.
0: And what's interesting is I think margin to equity is very reasonable, is my sense. I think you're somewhere between 5.5% and 15%, which in this world, I think sounds more than reasonable.
3: So speak to that real quick. When rates are zero, no one cares about a hedge fund charging what they charge. But when rates are 8% and you can make different rates trades with the capital that they're holding on their balance sheet, people don't want to give you that kind of balance sheet. So for us, having a very low margin equity allows people to add us as a niche portfolio component without tying up a ton of capital. So we're seeing huge interest right now from us, from institutions and fund to funds, because it's a real easy, uncorrelated bolt-on component that they can add to a portfolio, which is where a lot of our AUM growth has come from.
0: Brent, tell people where they can find you. I'm obviously you have a website, but just educate us a little bit there.
3: Yeah. www.kalercapital.com and myself or Sam are all on LinkedIn is the easiest.
0: Brent, Balote, it's great having you join us on the tape. We look forward to seeing more of you and hopefully seeing you at the end of January at the iConnections conference in South Beach. Definitely in January. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi.